<laughs> Welcome to my cave. The fuck? Where am I? <laughs> the universe of the wicked witch of Andrew. I was, I was just listening to a podcast about you. What the? How the fuck did I get here? <laughs> no one knows how it works. Well, what? What do you? What do you do? What am I doing here? What are you doing here? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. You wanna, you wanna let us summon you spirit? I mean, not really. I kind of just like to go home. Mm, who do you wanna talk to? Do, do I have to? Yes. <laughs> I, I, is, if I have to, Etienne Deschamps? Ah, yeah, yeah. I can bring up the little French guy. Okay, if that's the only way I'm getting out of here. Mm-hmm. One child murderer coming up. Extra crispy. Does anyone ever tell you that it smells like shockingly like fish in here? Mm. Once or twice. Down low, playing music that soothes the soul. There's something, something, something way Just to be your man and bang your cousin. How you doing, Ian? Feel feel like my brain is broken. Hmm. I've been editing a lot. Would it make you feel better to talk about a child murder? Yeah, probably. Okay. Well, I got good news for you. What's that? Well, I've been researching a child murderer for the last nine days. So. (laughs) Just like for fun? Yeah. I'm a method actor, so. (laughs) I murdered a child for this episode. Well, I wouldn't say that. I'm say that I read a lot of books and stuff. I wouldn't say that I went that far. You visualized it. <laughs> you have to. Yeah. You have to enter the mind of the killer. Right. Criminal minds. And I even killed a child to do it. Not a child. I guess a, a cow. Not a cow. A cat. I have no idea what you just said. Anyway, welcome back to <laughs> A Little Sassy, A Little Disturbed. I am Ian. With me as always, my best friend and co-host, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Uh, We're not actually best friends. We just, nope. We just play them on TV. We actually do not hang out outside of this. That's actually so. true. We don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sorry about all the ums and the throat clears and the weird noises I make. Uh, I've never actually been on a podcast before. I've never even done comedy in he, the local comedy scene. He's neurotic as fuck, so he just constantly has to be doing something with his mouth or throat. He's hyper aware of his own existence so he's constantly feeling himself swallow he's aware his tongue is in his mouth mm-hmm. the rate of his breathing his mm-hmm. pulse i was homeschooled yeah, yeah. and uh I was, I was telling you earlier i've done a lot of research on a child rapist and murderer this week so at first i wanted to die but then i wanted to die even more as i read about how much of a little bitch he was so right right right, right. it's kind of rough i think it goes without saying that there does need to be a content warning for this episode on oh yeah murder and sexual yep. assault first because one because it is we made it buddy it is it is gonna get graphic we made it it's gonna be it's gonna be brutal it's gonna get graphic it's gonna get brutal um also at the beginning we are a pro victim pod we love victims i love victims i love all of my victims no nope, that's not gonna work 
Okay. All right. Well, today we're going to be covering Dr. Etienne Deschamps. Dr. Etienne Deschamps was a child murderer in New Orleans in the late 19th century. Um, my main source for today, let's just get this out of the way because I'll forget. My main source today mm-hmm. was a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Etienne Deschamps, Murder in the New Orleans French Quarter by Christopher Pena. Okay. A good book. Um, Check it out. For the most. No, well. If you like that kind of thing. It's okay. It's fine. Most of it is the trials. Right. Right. It's also okay. I want to not to completely sandbag what you were talking about, but it's worth noting this is not a true crime episode. We're just talking. We're not. We're not doing true crime. No, this is history. Yeah, it's history. It was over a hundred years ago. It's history. Baby, lock the door. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Doctor Etienne Deschamps. And I use the term doctor lightly because we're not actually entirely sure he was a real doctor. But, you know, what are real doctors anyway? He just put DR period in front of his uh, office door. Anybody can do it. Yeah. I think it's legit. I trust you. Like a chiropractor. Sure. Yeah. Exactly like a chiropractor. Yeah. Or a naturopath. Yeah. Um, homeopath. What did you, you combi- call me? You called. You combine naturalist and homeopath. You called. You said naturopath. Well, maybe that's a thing. We'll look into it. I think we this. just invented a new Stacia? job. Stacia, can you look that up? Stacia, what are you doing? Put the put the cat toy down. <sighs> she's just got this big rubber fish in her mouth, and she's sitting on the couch like that's just like a normal thing to do. Gen Z should never have happened. <sighs> All right, well, I'm so mad. Well, it's okay. She's already hey, ruined this episode. Let's do this. Don't don't let her do this. Don't let another woman derail your life. All right. Doctor Etienne Deschamps was a dentist and a mesmerist who operated in the city of New Orleans in the late 19th century. He was also a treasure hunter obsessed with using magnetism <laughs> to find a lost treasure. Did he believe in dousing, do you know? What's dousing? Dousing is when you take um, dousing rods or uh, typically a willow willow branches mm-hmm. and use it to find, you can use it to find water, you can use it to find gems. It's not real. It doesn't work. Oh, it's, it's not. It's just what crazy people like. Mm. Yeah. Using the natural magnetic field. You had fields. someone in mind there, it looked like. You were going to say someone's name. No. Okay. Well, anyway, it's not dousing, but I mean, once you read this, probably. Okay. Right? So, anyway. Uh, he was also a treasure hunter. Did I already read that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this obsession with lost treasure ostensibly led to the tragic death of a 12-year-old girl. Right. But, I mean, if this was in the 1800s, kids were just dropping dead left and right anyways, so... I know that it sort of sounds like a joke, but as I was reading this book, the author would constantly be like, yeah, and then this guy, he had like seven kids and two survived, like all the time. Yeah, it was just a thing. Yeah, if it got cold that winter, it was just like you lost a kid. Whoops, there goes another one. Yeah, there goes Johnny. Toss him out with the recycle. (laughs) Put him in the compost bin. Mary! Next (laughs) next year when the vegetables taste oh so divine, you can think little Johnny. (laughs) All right. Well, that's is that funny? I think so. Okay. Well, let's get into it. Etienne Deschamps was born in Rennes, probably Rennes, 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 Fair Rene. France. Rene. Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. Etienne Deschamps was born in Rennes, France, in 1830. Though later evidence would indicate his precise date of birth was possibly about four years later. Deschamps was the firstborn among eight children in an affluent and socially high-profile family. Mm. While the rest of his family held a firm sentiment of personal responsibility, Etienne liked to fuck around. 
He did not share his family's ideologies, and he believed that he deserved a life of luxury with little to no work simply due to the fact that his family was rich. Mm. Mm. This carefree, selfish attitude generated a rift between him and the rest of his family by the time he was a teenager. That is not a face, mother. <laughs> In fact, his family members characterized him as possessing a, quote, roving and vagabond disposition. Not all who wonder a lost. <laughs> I was going to have you read that in regular voice, but that's amazing. <laughs> that's right. Not all who launder are launder are lost or whatever. The rift between Etienne and his family forced him to a crossroads by the early 1850s, where it appeared his family had basically kicked him out. So he did what every good disenfranchised white boy does. Form a chemical dependency and blame all his problems on poor people. <laughs> he joined the military, but I can see how those are basically the same thing. Yeah. Etienne was around 22 years old when he joined the French army, and he actually ended up fighting in the Crimean War, a relatively short conflict from 1853 to 1865 between the empires of Russia and the combined forces of the Ottoman Empire, France, Britain, and the Kingdom of Sardinia. I don't, I don't like sardines. Okay, well, from now on, we'll just refer to them all as the Allies for short, so you don't have to hear that again. Is that okay? Just like us. We're Allies. <laughs> That's true. Ruth Conda forever. <laughs> Ruth Conda forever. Little sassy, little stirp. Number one allies. We've said this. Everybody's saying it. Nobody's a bigger ally than us. Now, we don't know a lot uh, about Etienne's military service except for what he personally told reporters during his later imprisonment in New Orleans. Apparently, though, according to him, during the siege of the Crimean... Crimean? Crimean? Crimean. The Crimean capital of Sevastopol... A Russian soldier stabbed Etienne with a bayonet, and he was only saved when another French soldier shot his assailant. Pretty cool stuff. Love that. Love it for him. Allies. Upon the conclusion of the Crimean War in 1856, Deschamps returned to France, but the black sheep, as his family called him, still just didn't fit in. I like to think of him a little bit like a French Chris Farley in Black Sheep with David Spade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, Having Sacco, bitch out 400 chickens and 40 bagel. I'm taking him back to Nevada where he's wanted for banging horses. I've actually never seen Black Sheep. Oh, well, it seems like you have because you just quoted it. So, <laughs> With his family not wanting him around and nothing left for him in France, Deschamps left his home country for the crescent city of New Orleans. New Orleans. For the Crescent City, New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, we here at Little Sassy, Little Disturbed always want to tell you the truth. And our little jokes. Right. But I'm going to try and be as accurate as possible with Etienne Deschamps' background because the details can be admittedly a little hazy. Basically, we're not entirely sure when Deschamps arrived in New Orleans. Most likely it was either following the end of the Crimean War or it's possible that he moved to New Orleans before the war and went back in France in order to fight and then returned to New Orleans. It doesn't really fucking matter. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Regardless of when he arrived in New Orleans, Deschamps made his living there through a combination of dentistry and the dubious field of animal magnetism, otherwise referred to as mesmerism. The French are just so dumb that they thought that they could turn animals into magnets. Like... Is that what that is? I mean, if that's a joke, it's pretty close to being true. But not just the French. We'll, you know, we'll cover it a little bit. I mean, the French are really stupid. Um, I'm not going to go into that. All right. Okay. They're pretty artsy. Yeah. But artists are stupid. So, I mean, I'm agreeing with you. Artiste. Artiste. Sacré bleu. <laughs> okay. Let's get into mesmerism a little bit. If we have to. 
Uh, we do. It was named after the 18th century Viennese physician Franz Anton Mesmer, who tinkered in hypnosis and hypnotherapy in his free time. Though he was not the first to utilize hypnosis or transitory states as medical treatments because this practice dated back to ancient peoples. However, he may very well have been responsible for introducing this alternative medicine, uh, which is not real medicine, in in Europe, uh, particularly as treatment for ailments of the mind. Mm -hmm. The simplest way to break it down is that Mesmer basically believed that Newton's three basic laws applied to the human body. Essentially, he thought he could use magnets to break up the gravitational tides that were causing negative symptoms. Like he would just like rub a magnet along their body and hope that they felt better? Yes. (laughs) Like... Yes. Well, I mean, I guess that isn't as bad as what every other doctor was doing at the time with, like, leeches and opium and laxatives and cocaine. Yeah, I mean, out with the bad and with the good, you know. Like, Fucking magnets. How do they work? I have no idea. Magnets, bitch! <laughs> Is that steve Yeah, I did. Oh, bro, you're back. Okay. As an example of his animal magnetism at work, there was a time when one of his female patients came in with a toothache and a hear a hearache. A hear- I mean, that's... Yeah. Like, her ears hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It hurt when I hear. It hurt when I hear. They gonna learn good? Go to school? Go to school? All right. Well, she had a toothache and an earache, which was followed by delirium, rage, vomiting, and swooning, and I just call that women. Boom. Comedy. That's funny. We're allies. Amen, brother. Mesmer used a magnet to disrupt, as he saw it, this gravitational tide in her body that was causing these adverse symptoms. Basically, he, like Ian said earlier, he just ran a magnet along her body and employed a series of gestures and touches that he referred to as the mesmeric pass. Yeah, he uh, he gave people the mesmeric pass the way that Edison gave us the N-word pass that one time. That's true. We're, we keep it locked up yep. very safe. It's in our safe. Yep. Edison, don't worry about it, buddy. We're not going to use that uh, wrongly or in an improper manner. Everybody gets one. Emergencies only. Mesmer suggested to the female patient that the fluids flowing through her body were responsible for her condition and that through only his actions, he could drain away the negative energy. He basically used the magnetic instruments as props and just used like his power of persuasion, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was just telling them that they're better. Yeah. Mesmer knew that the magnet didn't actually directly contribute to the cure, but it was a really necessary part for his practice. It, It served to transfer his positive animal magnetism to his patients whose liquid levels or fluid levels or whatever had somehow been depleted inside their bodies. And it's important to note that his power of suggestion was the real key to his success. It's a mm-hmm. fact that seemed to elude even him. Like he thought um, he thought that he was he was actually curing them, but in reality, if the patient believed it would help, it did help. So, so like a literal placebo effect. Like a literal placebo. Like, and yeah. through this, modern day hypnosis and hypnotic suggestion was born, um, unbeknownst to even Mesmer. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, there is a lot of, like, that's what like psychic surgery is. Have you ever heard of psychic surgery? Go on. Um, essentially, you get placed into a trance. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't say the T. Rance. LGBTQ. Uh, what does the trans community have to do with this? <laughs> but no, and then essentially what the... Because the, it's done by magicians, basically. Can't trust them. And they, they're they like holding animal organs, like chicken gizzards and like cow livers and shit like that. a little voodoo? Yeah, basically. And then what they do is they like... They pretend to stick their hand in patients and like pull organs out and stuff. And then they're like... 
they like at the end of them, they pull them out of the trance and then they they hold up the pan full of organs and they're like, you're cured. And then that person dies because they didn't actually do anything. Yeah, they still have cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Their appendix still bursts. Psychic surgery is actually fascinating as far as how it ex- how it like started because now it's done by magi- ma- not me- magicians, magicians as like a proof, uh, like a proof of how good they are at palming and using sleight of hand, and it's like basically mm. to like point out the fallacies Maybe. of it. But it was legitimately used in not well, not legitimately. It was u- legitimately used by con artists to fuck people out maybe of their money. Maybe we should cover psychic surgery. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Well, that's pretty much the idea, I think. It's just a performance. Now, the first documented time that we have of Etienne Deschamps utilizing his animal magnetism occurred in 1853 when a stage actress, Eleanor Sage, was shot in the face by an incel stalker named Jules Betford, who then shot himself in the head. In fact, apparently Bedford's brains were splattered across the floor when the police got there. I love Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> I'm going to kill John Lennon. Sage, however, was lucky, and Bedford's bullet had entered through one cheek and exited out the other, leaving her disfigured but alive. This attempted murder-suicide occurred in November of 1853, and just a few months after that, in March of 1854, Deschamps began running a series of advertisements and advertisements in the Daily Picayune. Would you say Picayune? Probably. Mm. A daily New Orleans newspaper, claiming to have miraculously cured Sage from much exaggerated injuries uh, resulting from the shooting. According to Deschamps' advertisement, Sage was shot not in the cheek but in her neck, and this left her paralyzed on one side of her body and hours from death. Fortunately for Sage, however, Deschamps showed up and quickly applied homeopathy and magnetic clairvoyance. The ad actually ended with the following, It was no miracle, but the mere aiding of the efforts of nature instead of opposing them. Monsieur Deschamps will continue as heretofore to give consultations for the different causes of disease. Each person has wished to be initiated into his system can find him at his office, number 1671 Royal Street, every day from 4 to 5 o'clock in the evening. Wait, he's only open for a fucking hour? It's a tight window. 4 to 5 o'clock. Get in. Get in while it's hot. I mean, he's a busy guy. So with an established pseudoscience practice, Deschamps bounced back to Paris and achieved some form of medical degree, as well as some medicinal coursework, and by the late 1860s, he was ready for business, but he instead chose to work dentistry as a day job in order to fund his partying. Yeah, he was making a shit ton of money, and he spent all of it. Yeah. His life caught up with him, and either his family troubles, or according to him, his involvement in some sort of political turmoil, he once again fled from France to New Orleans in late 1868. While he had apparently arrived penniless, he was living in the city and working as a successful dentist by 1870, so pretty quick turnaround there. Now, Deschamps only spoke French, and he certainly chose the right city as a considerable portion of New Orleans' population also spoke French. Right. After earning a considerable amount of wealth through dentistry, and perhaps with the help of daddy's money back Mm. home... Or... Pale... Uh, Deschamps began to pop up. <laughs> Deschamps began to travel the world, touring from place to place and fluctuating from wealth to poverty as he partied his money away and then earned it right back through dentistry or animal magnetism. In fact, he arrived back in New Orleans in 1884, broke and ready to start again. After moving around a bit while getting back onto his feet, 
He settled into an apartment on St. Peter Street and hung a banner from his balcony that read in French, Searching for the truth, doing it well, magnetism, Dr. Etienne, professor of magnetic physiology of Paris, all maladies cured by magnetism, treatment at domicile. This would be the very same apartment in which he would later commit a most heinous crime. Never learn English? We speak English here. If you want to live here, speak it. The crime was actually child murder. Oh. Yeah. But you should, you know, it's, we don't actually have official language. I'd like to point that out. You can speak whatever you want. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, at this time, uh, Deschamps would begin to use aliases more often than not. Some of them included Dr. Eugene Etienne and Dr. Eugene Dayon. So the first one there is just him using his first name as his last name and adding Eugene. Right. Very clever guy. What a guy. What a guy. Who would have thought? Hmm. <laughs> I thought he was going to be real smart. While there is no recorded reasoning behind his use of aliases, I think it's safe to assume he had defrauded someone or perhaps left a trail of unsatisfied customers. Naturally. Well, he lived in a poor neighborhood, and considering that his fee was small, it is safe to assume that he relied on quantity over quality, which usually leaves you with a lot of unsatisfied customers. Yep, just like us. Baby, that's what we're searching for. Hell yeah. Speaking of, uh, of quantity, uh, patreon.com slash LSLD. $3. $3 a month. That's Please. all it takes. We can't feed our starving children. Yeah. The so, raccoons aren't selling that <laughs> No one's purchasing my stuffed raccoons. So Deschamps continued doing his own research and using it to perform hack medical procedures on the gullible poor and throwing the pigskin for the packers. <laughs> he turned to dentistry when he needed a little bit of extra cash. At this time, chloroform had risen in the ranks of the anesthetic popularity contest and had become the chief agent used in putting patients to sleep. Now, before chloroform, there were three primary anesthesia choices. Do you want to guess what they are, Ian? Alcohol? Mm-hmm. Cocaine? Mm-hmm. Nope. That's not a... Why would that knock you out? It numbs. Mm. That's true. But, yeah, okay. Keep going. Giant Opium? heroin, heroin, Opium. yeah, giant cartoon hammer, giant <laughs> cartoon, <laughs> an anvil falling from the sky, going. Meep. No, it was uh, morphine, opium, and alcohol. So you're two for okay. three. All right. Yeah, uh, chloroform actually. Wait, morphine is an opiate, so mm-hmm. wouldn't that kind of just be the same thing? It's a derivative of opium, yeah. Mm. And just like how all your jokes are derivative of mine. You did write the script. Now, chloroform, <laughs> chloroform took over the dentistry world by storm after its discovery in 1831 and its first successful application during surgery in 1847, in part due to its transportability and non-flammability. Yep. Uh, Francis Brody Imlock became the first dentist to successfully use chloroform in a dental procedure. It was done, I can't remember the girl's name, I did not write it down, but he did it on a woman patient. Hmm. In 1847. I've always said that women should have good teeth. Mm-hmm. It's important. Yeah. On top of also being a really common anesthetic for dental procedures, I heard it also became really popular for suicide. That's true. I heard that too. Did I mention that anyone could buy chloroform in the 1880s? You could just fucking walk on down to the store and grab a couple bottles of chloroform. Yeah, yeah. Here, let me set the scene for you. It's a- mm-hmm. Hey, how you doing, man? Uh, can, I, uh, can I get a pack of Marlboro Lights? Uh, Trojan Bearskins, $3 on pump four, and yeah, let me get two bottles of chloroform. You want unleaded? 
Gas or chloroform? You want to unlead it? Yeah. Okay. No. What? No, I don't. I want the chloroform to taste sweet. Diesel. Diesel. <laughs> oh boy, Alberto. I don't know why that's what gas station employees sound like. <laughs> okay. Yes, it was cheap and readily available at your local store. Also, as a dentist, it wasn't suspicious at all for Etienne Deschamps to regularly acquire chloroform for use in his practice and for other means later on. Uh, yeah, so basically to summarize at this time, as far as we knew, he was operating a successful dentistry practice while on the side dabbling in animal magnetism and began combining hypnotism with the use of chloroform. I actually made myself cry on purpose. Why? Because <laughs> it was funny and now I can't stop. What was funny? Crying. There's something in my eye. It's allergy season. <laughs> yeah, it's called donuts and pork rinds. It should be noted that whether or not Deschamps truly believed in the effects of animal magnetism and hypnosis, or if he willingly deceived his patients to achieve results, is not readily discernible, much like Alex Jones, I think. What I meant when I said that those children didn't actually get mowed down was that they did, but they weren't actually... Like, not getting mowed down. I, I, it was a joke. Oh, very good, Mr. Jones. Kidding. That's protected. Yeah. Yeah, it's parody law. Parody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, Okay. At any rate. Yeah. In his free time, this self-proclaimed surgeon dentist still enjoyed traveling, but he now remained closer to New Orleans and spent a lot of time in the various bayous and exploring the numerous islands and inlets that make up the southernmost portion of Louisiana. It was on one such expedition, this time to the Barataria region, where Deschamps became captivated with the true story of the French pirate Jean Lafitte and his lost treasure after Deschamps happened upon some coins and trinkets buried in the sand. He's just a fucking nerd with a metal detector or probably some dousing rods. I think it's also important to note that Jean Lafitte's treasure was never found and it also most likely never existed in the first place. Mm-hmm. With his new fixation on this treasure hunt in mind, Deschamps needed a new plan, and apparently a virgin. Specifically, he wanted a suitable subject he could hypnotize into revealing the exact location of the treasure. How how does a random person know where a non-existent treasure is? Okay, I actually, to be honest, I have no fucking idea. I looked, and I couldn't find any reason why he would believe this, and part of me is inclined to think he just made it up to justify murdering a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, I mean, honestly, crazy people who are really, really narcissistic and self-assured will probably find any way to impose their will on anyone. So I don't think it really matters why he thought that. He just did it. Maybe by hypnotizing them, he thought he was, like, opening a temporary physical portal for the ghost of Jean Lafitte to communicate. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, he's, like, allowing... channeling the spirit. Yeah, channeling the spirit from the void or some bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regardless of the details of Deschamps' screwball plan, he soon found his suitable subject in the young Juliette Deitch in the autumn of 1887. Juliette had moved to New Orleans from France with her father Jules, her sister Lawrence, and her grandmother just a few months before the family met Deschamps. Jules' wife, the girl's mother, had died about six years prior to this, and he moved them across the Atlantic for a fresh start. Jules was actually a carpenter who barely made enough money to provide for his family. Sounds like if uh, he would have uh, enrolled in Hustlers University, maybe he could have afforded to provide for them better and drive a Bugatti. Yeah, not only do you take care of your family, but you also have a sweet-ass ride on top Mm -hmm. of that. Alpha. Yeah. Alpha Romero, even. If he wanted. You know, 
maybe pick up cabinetry on the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cabinetry. Like Deschamps, Jules and his daughters barely spoke any English, and it must have been a pleasant surprise for them to meet Deschamps in a French restaurant shortly after uh, Jules and his family arrived in America. Yeah, it seemed at first like it was going to be like a really lucky thing that they were like, oh my God, we met someone who's also from France and only speaks French, but it actually quickly went south on them and turned into a fucking nightmare. Yeah. The two Frenchmen quickly became good friends, though, and no doubt in part due to Deschamps' willingness to help the struggling Jules out financially when he needed it. Now, it's not hard to look back retrospectively at this sort of thing and see it as deliberately manipulative, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, the kind of monster Deschamps truly was, of course, he offered, you know, the struggling man whose daughter he was trying to kidnap, he offered him money, like, to help him out, right? Yeah. Um, He's making himself invaluable. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Deschamps would show up at the Deech household regularly and regale the family with stories from back across the pond in France. France. He would also treat the grandmother's various aches and pains with magnetism, and treat is in uh, air quotes there, I think. As their friendship grew, so did Jules' trust of Deschamps, and he soon allowed the Frenchman to be alone with his daughters. In fact, he thought nothing of it. By the end of 1888 summer, Etienne Deschamps was calling upon the two girls each day after school. When they didn't have school, he was taking them for walks about the city, as well as the neighboring countryside. In fact, the trio was seen together so often that many New Orleans residents assumed Deschamps was the girl's father, always buying them toys and treats. That's literal grooming. That is, that's literally grooming. As this strange relationship continued, Deschamps began taking the two girls up to his apartment. This was witnessed by neighbors who told Jules Deitch that they didn't think this seemed right, but Jules trusted Deschamps so much that he simply brushed it off. One of the sources I was reading for this said Deschamps went out of his way to kiss both girls goodbye when he left the Deitch household until the point where the father thought Juliet was just too old to do so. I like that there is a window where it's like totally cool to kiss a little girl, even when you're not related to her, and it's only gross or creepy when she's a little too old for that. Too old to kiss, yeah. Yeah, I hate it. I mean, I understand that kissing goodbye is a European thing. It's just time to move on from that. It's 2022. This is America. Uh, Kissing among consenting adults only, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. We're allies. Consent is cool. According to those that knew her, Juliet was actually considered, quote, backwards intellectually, but very pretty with dark brown hair and about five feet tall. So what exactly does backwards intellectually mean? In the 1800s? Yeah. She was just slightly dumber than the dumb people. I feel like everyone back then was probably backwards intellectually. That's what I mean. Especially in the South. Well, they weren't winning any Pulitzers. Okay, fair. In August of 1888, Deschamps convinced Jules to let him borrow Juliet and hypnotize her into telling him where Jean Lafitte's treasure was buried. Bonjour, Jules. How's it thinking? Bonjour, Deschamps. I am poor and a little dumb. Ah, parfait. Say, I was going to ask you, may I borrow your 12-year-old daughter? Juliet? Whatever for, my dear, trusted and not creepy at all friend? Ah, I'm glad you have asked this. You see, I am searching for pirate treasure. Pirate treasure? Oui, oui, shut up, Jules, and let me finish. Oh, pardon. As I say, I am looking for the pirate treasure, the lost booty of Jean Lafitte. And I need your 12-year-old daughter to help me find it because she is... Pure of heart, you know, a virgin. You will use her like metal detector? 
In a way, my dear Jules, in a way. But, my friend, nothing nefarious so creepy, though, right? No, of course not. Why would you even say this? No, no, pardon. I, the neighbors have been talking. Ah, never mind them. They know nothing, they fools. Now she is a virgin, no? At this point in August of 1888, the grandmother we discussed earlier fell ill, and that took up a lot of Jules and Lawrence's time. Lawrence, you'll remember, is Juliet's younger daughter. sister. Yeah, yeah. Uh, She was about 10 at this time, I think. Young Juliet began visiting Deschamps alone. Now, the mad Frenchman actually attempted to hypnotize Juliet numerous times without success, and he was, in fact, only able to put her to sleep one time. Yeah, that, w- that time, what he ended up doing was explaining to her that Tame Impala was just one guy, and he kept putting on the less I know the better over and over again and explaining to her what all the lyrics meant. That is, That sounds very boring. Yeah, just like every guy that's ever used that on a Tinder date. <laughs> Failing to achieve the desired hypnotic effect with Juliet, Deschamps transferred his hypnotism efforts to Jules, Though I'm not sure how that makes sense because I thought the whole idea was that Juliet was pure in body and mind because she was a virgin and obviously her dad's not a virgin. Right. Um, Is this guy just out to hypnotize this entire fucking family? They should have just called him television. Get it? Because he's hypnotizing an entire family in the United States of America? Wake up, sheeple! Finding no success with either Deech using his traditional hypnosis, Deschamps turned to what the strange case of Dr. Etienne Deschamps called his final solution. Well, he's French, not German, so... So he began using chloroform to render... To window, To window, To render Juliet unconscious, ostensibly still with the goal of her revealing the pirate treasure. Again, it is never made clear by the Frenchman how this mysterious ritual process worked. He's just trying to cover up the fact that he wants to molest this kid. Unfortunately, I think you're right. In fact, similar to what we discussed earlier, we will never know if Deschamps actually believed he could use magnetism and hypnosis to find buried treasure, or if he was simply a fucking evil, devious child molester. Now, I believe it is a good time for those trigger warning flags to go up. Yeah, uh, this is where the episode becomes no longer sassy, just disturbed. It is going to get pretty fucked up now, so this is your fair warning. Turn back now. Deschamps claimed until his death that up until that point, his relationship with Juliet, again a 12-year-old girl, was not sexual, simply business, meaning treasure hunting, I guess. An important note, the following information I'm going to convey is all from Deschamps, so it's almost certainly bullshit, right? Around this time, Deschamps took a short business trip to Huma, Louisiana. What do you think that is, Huma? Halma! Probably. Okay. Huma, Louisiana, which is about an hour from New Orleans. And upon his return, he says he just knew something was different about Juliet. Again, a 12-year-old girl. She probably got her period. It's worse. During one of those normal hypnotic sessions, something was just not right, and Deschamps pressed Juliet to tell him what was the matter. Now, apparently, Juliet told him that while he was away, she had lost her virginity to a neighborhood boy her age, making her no longer a virgin and thus no longer a pure vessel for treasure hunting. I suppose. Since she was no longer a virgin, Deschamps decided in his sick little mind that it was now okay to pursue this girl himself. Yikes. Yikes. According to him, again, the last three paragraphs, this isn't this isn't the book the author saying it, it's not us saying it, this is literally his opinion. Okay. According to him, he began to take liberties with her, and the child never took exception. So at the very bare minimum, he's 
definitely a statutory rapist. Uh, Ian, ask me what the age of consent was within the state of Louisiana in 1888. You're about to tell me something really fucking depressing, aren't you? Mm, 12 years old. Fuck. The age of consent in Louisiana in 1888 was 12 years it's old. It's a real libertarian paradise over there. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh. In fact, at this time, the age of consent in every state was either 10 or 12, with the exception of Delaware, where it was 7 years old. What the fuck is happening in Delaware? Libertarian heaven... And certainly nothing good. So we know that Deschamps was now committing sexual acts with a 12-year-old girl and still attempting to use her to find hidden pirate treasure. Apparently, some of these acts were witnessed by the younger sister, Lawrence. But understandably, she was too young to quite understand the gravity of the situation. What's what's the age gap between Lawrence and Juliet? Do you two, remember? Years. two years. Lawrence was 10. So she's 10? Yeah, literally, she's probably just thinking that He's, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what. Well, it's it's a man that's trusted by their father, right? And, like he, and he also, also, you have to remember, we have, um, uh, like I think two months leading up to this of uh, his scientific experiments with them, right? Where he's like, uh, we'll get into like what he does to them with like, like he like, you know, magnetism and trying to hypnotize them and shit. Right. So maybe he, she thinks it's just part of that. I'm assuming. They're playing doctor. No, literally, yeah. Like, um, he's a fucking doctor, yeah. Yeah. On Tuesday, January 29th, the Deech girls accompanied Deschamps to his apartment for apparently another session of treasure-hunting hypnosis. In reality, he had the sisters take off their clothing, lay in his bed, and drink chloroform. Jesus Christ. I told you it doesn't get any better. In fact, from, from here on out, it's all bad, by the way. Um, not looking forward to it. Well, this is what we got ourselves into here. Uh, when the younger Lawrence awoke, she had a terrible upset stomach, and she found that she had vomited all over herself. According to Lawrence, this is the first time that Deschamps had offered them both chloroform. In the past, he had magnetized both girls with or without the presence of their father, Jules, and I know that he had uh, magnetized their father a bunch of times as well and tried mm-hmm. to hypnotize him. Now, the magnetism ritual included uh, him passing his hands, a mirror, or a metal rod in front of their faces, um, and he referred to this as a magnetizing disc. Um, a metal rod isn't exactly a disc, though, is it? No. But I don't think that much of the things he does make very much sense. Did they even have magnets in the old times? How do they work? <laughs> he also owned a beautiful piece of wood with a chunk of magnetic steel in the middle of it. mm Unfortunately, the girls never told their father of that day's events, which we would later find out was because Deschamps told them not to. Yeah, that's just like step one in the pedophile handbook is be like, you can't tell your dad about this, okay? Yeah. He'll be mad at you. Some tropes are there for a reason. Yeah. So, yeah, and it is probably pretty common, but if the girls had told their father, the next day's tragedy could have been averted. Yeah, it's... Not even really victim blaming, just because kids really shouldn't have to go through that shit. No, no, we're we're all in on the Deschamps being a piece of shit. It's yeah. not the kids' fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're full tilt. They're fucking kids. Because of Lawrence's lingering feeling of illness from the previous day's poisoning, the girls did not attend school the following day on January thirtieth. In fact, Deschamps showed up to the Deech home at around one in the afternoon and declared he was taking the girls for a walk. Their father was even home at the time, and he acquiesced. Rather than taking the girls for the walk that he promised, Deschamps took them back to his apartment where the events of the previous day would transpire again. However, this time the ending would shock the entire city of New Orleans. 
Now, upon arrival at the apartment, Deschamps realized he needed more firewood as it was a cold January day. He then left the girls alone and retrieved some, but he quickly returned. And this is, again, where the things turned dark and very sassy and very disturbed. Fair warning. This is sinister and unsettling. So, here it is. We've never done content like this before, so... We're trying to cover all the bases here. Yeah. I mean, a guy cutting his own nuts off is unsettling, but this is... Just fucked. It's bad. It's not good. It's not good. I don't like it. We here at Little Sassy Little Disturbed are against child molestation. Anti-pedophile. And, uh... I I don't have a problem saying it. Yeah. I'll say it right now. I don't like them. I hate pedophiles. Don't like them. Whoa. Hate is kind of a... All right. Um, Fuck, this is going to be rough. Deschamps told both of the girls to get undressed, and he asked Juliet to lie down on the bed. Lawrence stood or sat off to the side of the room, and most of the story that we now have is from her perspective. As the girls were undressing, Deschamps closed and locked every door, shuttered the windows, and then lit a candle. He turned to watch the girls undressed and paced silently as he did so. Juliet neatly placed her clothes onto a nearby chair and laid on her back on the bed. Deschamps then undressed himself and lay next to Juliet on the bed with an open bottle of chloroform. Lawrence recalled Deschamps whispering something to Juliet that she couldn't quite hear, and then he said aloud that he intended to magnetize Juliet using the chloroform's vapors. In the later trial, Lawrence claimed that Juliet wanted to be chloroformed and so took the bottle, but when she held it to her nose, the pernicious smell caused her to turn her head away. Now this part actually really fucking got to me here. I spent a week reading about a child molester and murderer, and you really appreciate the research that goes into this sort of thing, because listening to an hour of it's like, fine, but when you're, like, writing and, and listening to and reading about it for a week, it kind of fucking messes with your head a little bit. But anyway, this part really fucked me up. So according to the strange case of Dr. Etienne Deschamps, when Juliet turned her head away from the chloroform because it smelled bad, Deschamps straightened her head, told her that was normal, and insisted that she smell it again that it was good for her in spite of its unpleasantness. When she did, she stated that she saw God, the Holy Virgin, and Jackson Square, according to Lawrence's May of 1889 testimony. But during Deschamps' retrial, uh, Lawrence claimed that her sister saw the church, God, angels, and Jackson Square. Why she had a vision of Jackson Square in the French Quarter is anyone's guess. She probably meant that she saw the visions in Jackson Square, but either way, as Lawrence recalled, Deshaun replied that it was good. So he's poisoning a little girl, and as she's hallucinating, he's like, yeah. Good job. Yeah, this is good. No, no, it's great. working. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's good. Perfect. It's good. Great. Awesome. Great. great. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Juliet listened to Deschamps and continued to inhale the drug through her nose and mouth, which was Deschamps' idea, as he is assumed inhaling through both would have a greater effect. Well, he was a doctor. However, Juliet still remained conscious, or at least semi-conscious. Deschamps then got out of the bed, grabbed a handkerchief with his initials on it, and soaked it with the remaining chloroform. He walked back over to Juliet and placed the handkerchief over her nose and mouth. And once he did this, Juliet turned her head and closed her eyes, and she would never open them again. Yeah, he caused this 12-year-old girl to overdose on chloroform and essentially was doing it under the guise of finding long-lost pirate treasure. Yeah. So, <laughs> God, that sentence is insane. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a manifesto. Yeah. Like, I will find the... Oh, that's a bad... Okay. 
I will find the pirate treasure by turning this girl into a victim of sexual assault. I don't know about that plan, Chachi. <laughs> That's funny. Chachi. Is that French? Again, our only witness to this horrible event was the victim's sister, Lawrence, and of course, Deschamps, but I think we can sort of gloss over whatever he said. Now, Lawrence said that as soon as Deschamps realized that Juliet was no longer moving, he got out of bed, fell to his knees, and loudly demanded that God let him die. So it's just that scene from White as Kids where Zach and his family are just screaming, Kill us, God! Kill us! <laughs> God, please, please! Kill us! Well, his next move was to leave Lawrence with the dead body of her older sister while he went to the store to get some more fucking chloroform, and he locked the door behind him. So I think it's a safe thing to say that Lawrence didn't know that her sister was dead yet. Yeah, I think she just thought she was asleep like right. the day before. Yeah. I'm not sure. Obviously, the doctor knew him. I'm assuming he checked her vitals right. or something because he's like, oh, she's unconscious. Good. Right. And then he checked and she, he was like, oh, fuck. Kill me, God. Yeah. God, kill me. I was under the impression with overdosing chlor- on chloroform, I was under the impression that it was a gradual thing and not something that could happen so quickly. Is it just because... Well, you're right. You are correct. But I'm guessing that because he had rudimentary ways of checking the pulse that it could lower the pulse to below right. his well, physical detection. Because from the, what I read about chloroform was that it leads to cardio, uh, cardiorrhythmia and in doing, like they called it, um, I actually wrote it down, hang on. They called it. Oh, he took notes. He did. He didn't do the reading, but somebody read it to him. He said the F-slur. Uh, it was cardiac arrhythmia and they referred to it as sudden sniffer's death. Hmm. So... I mean, heart failure, basically. Why is, is what it called is. sniffer's death? Because it's from huffing chloroform. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think the sister knew she was dead. Yeah. Um, so, Deschamps instructed Lawrence to sit on the bed next to Juliet's body and ingest the fucking vial of chloroform that he had previously given her. So, he was like, one's not enough. Well, no witnesses. He's going two for two. However, whether because of the illness after the previous day's exposure to chloroform or because of what she had just seen it do to her sister, Lawrence thankfully did not follow Deschamps' instructions and she did not ingest the chloroform. So Deschamps bought more chloroform from a different store this time, so not to raise suspicions. Real clever guy. And then he returned with it. When he got back inside, he again locked the doors and he again undressed while asking Lawrence if she had bothered the body at all. Any guesses on what Deschamps does next, Ian? I really don't. I don't. I don't wanna. You don't want to guess. I'm. Ju- my head's just going to the most morbid possibility. Like he's either gonna molest the dead body or he's gonna try to fucking molest Lawrence. Nope. Neither. Nope. Is it worse? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> he soaked another handkerchief in chloroform and placed it over Juliet's mouth and nose after removing the old one. The fucker doubled down. Yeah, if she wasn't already dead, uh, as we talked about earlier, maybe uh, she was still alive. But this definitely killed her. Yeah, it probably looked really bad during his trial when his lawyer was like, <laughs> his lawyer was like, no, 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 it was an act. The first one was well, no, they were both accidents. But he tripped and fell, and the handkerchief and landed on her nose and mouth. He tripped and fell and walked out of his apartment. Got dressed and walked out of his apartment. <laughs> he fell all the way down the stairs and all the way to the drugstore. He fell up to the counter and oh my God. as he was screaming, Clara. And then, you know, yeah, it's just not good. Yeah, it's a real tough sell to get that first degree murder, or not, I guess it wouldn't be first degree. It'd probably be second or third. It's premeditated, yeah. Well, he didn't try to kill her. It's no, probably but, third. No, they they pushed premeditated. That's what I'm saying. Oh, they did? Okay, yeah. well, either way, it probably was a really hard sell to get that chance. Well, premeditated from that to, like, would be manslaughter. 
or, or girl yeah. slaughter. I mean, before you could get that, but it's premeditated if he goes back to the store to get right, more and brings right, it back to put right. it on. Yeah, okay. Right. So he doubled down. And at this point, Lawrence was sure something was wrong, and she begged to be allowed to return home. Instead of answering the little girl, Deschamps got out of bed, still nude, and began to root around in one of his trunks for personal letters and papers, which he then burned. Oh, so he's like guilty, guilty. He's definitely not innocent. Getting rid of the in- uh, evidence. Mm. Whatever it was, yeah, we, we'll never know. Yeah. Uh, he then took a bundle of his dentistry tools and handed them to Lawrence and told her to bring them to her father. At this point, Lawrence frantically began to get dressed, and Deschamps even helped her to put her shoes on. Wait, she was naked the whole time? Yeah, they all were. Yeah. Yeah. Once Lawrence was dressed, Deschamps shoved the heavy bundle of dentistry equipment into her arms, pushed her out the door, and locked it behind her. If you recall, Deschamps had picked up the girls around 1 p.m. Now, at 4 p.m., a crying Lawrence arrived home, yelling to her father that Deschamps was going to kill himself and that her sister Juliet would not wake up. Obviously, a panicking Jules started for Deschamps' residence immediately. Yeah, Jules found the front door was still locked upon his arrival and was banging on it in a frenzy, causing the neighbor, Charles Sarah, who was essentially an off-duty cop, uh, it, he came out to see what was going on. Jules told Sarah that his young daughter was in the apartment with the suicidal Deschamps, and Sarah quickly agreed to help. Right, and with no luck at either the front or back door, Sarah sent Jules to the local precinct, and he soon returned with several other police officers. After trying multiple entrances, one of the officers finally just broke down the fucking door. Yeah, the uh, the group entered and was immediately met with the overwhelming stench of chloroform, so you can only imagine the scene they walked in on. Two bodies laying side by side, nude and face up, with a sheet pulled up to their waist. Multiple empty glass bottles, chloroform-soaked handkerchiefs, the two magnetism tools we discussed earlier, and a sharp dental instrument also lay on the bed with the bodies. Deschamps' clothing was strewn wildly around while Juliet's clothing was neatly folded on the chair. The makeshift posse soon discovered that Deschamps had stabbed himself multiple times in the chest with that dental tool that was on the bed, before dosing himself with chloroform. I'm just trying to imagine what was going through Jules' head when he looked at his dead, naked daughter lying next to the naked body of Deschamps, who not only was a close friend of his, but also someone he trusted, who ended up killing his daughter. One of the officers that arrived on the scene soon found the charred remains of those letters Deschamps had burned, as well as several sealed envelopes containing letters written by Juliet, expressing her love and loyalty for Deschamps even claiming that she was his mistress. It was fairly obvious to all involved that these letters were strategically placed by Deschamps, and while they were written by Juliet, I think it's fairly obvious that the young girl was probably coerced. That evening, the coroner arrived. Dr. Lemonnier? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Lemonnier. Lemonnier. That evening, the coroner arrived, Dr. Lemonnier, and examined Juliet's body and the surrounding crime scene. Dr. Le Monnier right away noticed a marked discoloration around Juliet's nose and mouth. These were chemical burns from the chloroform. He quickly concluded from the chemical burns and the foul-smelling handkerchiefs that Juliet had obviously overdosed from chloroform. Uh, he also noticed that Juliet was no longer a virgin. Additionally, Dr. Le Monnier found a part of Juliet's homework in the pocket of her discarded clothing. This homework was focused on letter dictation such as, Dear Parents, etc., He quickly compared them to the love letters mentioned earlier and found that some were nearly identical, with the exception of Deschamps' name in the place of parents. Oh, so he was definitely like, 
getting her to... He had a girl who was, I think, in special ed classes do her homework but include his name. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fucking diabolical when you get down to it. Yeah. yeah. It's rough. When the coroner left the scene, he charged an officer, Delonde, to stay overnight with the body and note when rigor mortis set in so that the doctor could determine a more precise time of death. Uh, based on Delon's observations, Dr. Lemonnier declared the time of death between 2.30 and 4.30 p.m. Yeah, he originally had it at 4.30 uh, based on the rigor mortis, and then he moved it back a little bit right. um, after they had more information on the events. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, upon the arrival of his still-naked, unconscious body to the hospital, Etienne Deschamps was administered a vomit-producing emetic, and the doctor present was able to discern undigested chloroform among the upchucked contents of his stomach. When he woke up, Etienne was told of Juliet's death and to the news. He acted surprised and then he insisted he meant to kill himself before he was saved. I know it's kind of late to note this, but he's also like, I think he's like 60 years old at this time. Oh, wow. So he's like a very old. Yeah. He's like 58 or 60. Yeah. We don't actually ever know his real death or real, I'm sorry, his real age. Yeah, because he he gave two different uh, mm. stories. Uh, one of them was a census that came around years earlier, and he answered differently than when he answered reporters. But mm. um, he also, to the doctors when he was revived, he hazily described his relationship with Juliet as friendly at first and then more than that. Something I found really interesting here is that when police attempted to transfer Deschamps from the hospital to jail, the supposedly suicidal Frenchman freaked out on them about his chest hurting and the possibility of getting his feet wet, which couldn't possibly be good for his already damaged health. Yeah, the police found this interesting as well, and they asked Deschamps if he didn't still want to die, to which he replied, Eh, no. (laughs) No. As if we needed another example of Deschamps' deplorable character, during his first jail interview, he told a reporter that he had failed in his magnetism mission because Juliet was no longer pure in mind and body, that is, she was no longer a virgin. He intentionally degraded the deceased girl's character by claiming that Juliet had wanted to commit suicide because she had failed him by no longer being a virgin, and he agreed to commit the act together with her. In this pathetic fantasy he was painting, they disrobed, drank the chloroform together, and laid down to die as forbidden lovers. Yeah, I mean, when he saw that she had died but he hadn't yet, he proceeded to stab himself in the chest and lay back down. Yeah, a real Romeo and Juliet situation mm, here. It's romantic. Yeah, if you're sick. Mm, I'm a real sick puppy. Fuck. While Deschamps spun lies in jail, the community came together to fully fund Juliet's untimely burial in New Orleans' St. Louis Cemetery Number no. 2. Above ground. Yeah, actually, that's true, above ground. And interestingly enough, I have actually walked through that very cemetery when I visited New Orleans. Unfortunately, Juliet was buried in an unmarked grave, so I can't say for sure that I saw it specifically. But uh, Yeah, a bummer. From that cemetery... You can see the freeway above some of the graves and also a giant uh, lotto sign. Like a billboard for the fucking lotto. What a wonderful way to honor the dead. (laughs) Tell them it's the ugly house, the one that you can see the KFC (laughs) through the front window. Deschamps recovered from his self-inflicted wounds in the infirmary of the Orleans Parish Prison for three days before he was moved to Gen Pop. But within 24 hours of his transfer, he once again made an attempt at suicide This one was even more pathetic than the last one. Basically, he climbed on top of a water closet about seven feet off the ground and claimed he was going to throw himself to the ground. I'm going to kill myself. Hey, uh, Deschamps. 
Uh, gonna need you to come down from there. We, I will be coming down, but I will be coming down head first, mon frère. Oh, yeah, come on, man. I, I don't even think that's gonna kill you. I mean, it's, it's not very far up there. It's just not. It's, it's seven feet. You're gonna be okay. Who is that doctor here? Well, I, I don't think that either of us are doctors, to be honest with you. I mean, you don't have a medical degree. I killed a little girl. I think I'm perfectly capable of killing myself. We have a confession? No, no, no. I mean, I'm... Uh, sacre bleu! <laughs> it was an accident. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, meanwhile, Dr. Lemon... Lemonier? Lemonade? Dr. Lemon... Dr. Lemonier? Lemonier? Dr. Lemonier's. What is it? Lemonnier. Meanwhile, Dr. Lemonnier had performed an autopsy on Juliet's corpse and made some pretty interesting discoveries. Uh, here is another content warning. Again, if at some point you did not heed our warning about how graphic this was going to be, mm-hmm. this is now your warning. And this is to, the worst one. Yeah, this is like yeah. autopsy, very graphic, body yep. body horror, like mm-hmm. gore, murder, yeah. It's like watching the Patriot. If you don't want to hear this, back off. Go listen to go, go give listen the, to my brother and my brother and me. I don't know what to tell you. Go give your phone back to mom. Give the Ezra Klein show a listen. I don't know what to tell you. This American Life. Hmm. The doctor determined that Juliet had died quickly as there was undigested food still in her stomach. There was also no chloroform in her stomach, so she had inhaled all of it. The doctor also found, quote, Juliet's genitals were bathed with a profuse, viscid, and milky white fluid similar to that of semen, the result of a recent copulation. With this, the doctor determined that not only had Deschamps killed the young Juliet, but he had also copulated with her post-mortem. What? He fornicated with the cadaver. What? He fucked the dead body. Oh, gross. I mean, I was... I was kind of right. You were right earlier, yeah. 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 Not happy about still it. Still gross. Yeah. You don't want to be right. No. The doctor continued the unfortunate revelations by saying, quote, the anus d- is dilated, admitting easily the introduction of the first joint of the index finger, and funnel-shaped. In a word, the symptoms are characteristic of sodomy. Wait, so did the doctor stick his finger up a dead girl's ass? Yeah, the doctors, to them, we are simply cars whose engine they are checking out under the hood. Overpaid meat magicians. We're not real people. Of course, these autopsy discoveries did not help Deschamps, and in fact made it seemingly more obvious that he had murdered the poor girl. I do declare. From the beginning, Deschamps pled not guilty and was very insistent on being appointed an attorney who spoke French, which is understandable considering his very limited English. Yo, Anna, the prosecution does not understand this problem. I am just a simple southern lawyer, and I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why we are making exceptions for this fucking creep. Creep. It is sweltering in this courtroom. I do declare I have a touch of the vapors, and we will not be forced to listen to the devil's language. That, 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 that is French. I say, I say, I say, I say, I say, listen, y'all. This courtroom is a... <laughs> he fucked that little girl. No. Maybe only when she was dead. We we gotta... <laughs> we gotta move on. Deschamps, in fact, turned down multiple appointed attorneys, though it seemed like this was just a stall tactic or even a way to paint himself as insane, and this became one of his prominent defenses later on in the trial process. Yeah, some attorneys... 
even turn him down because it wasn't exactly an enticing deal to represent a guy who was pretty pretty obviously guilty uh, of raping a child and murdering a child. Yeah, it didn't look good. Um, uh, in the meantime, though, Deschamps established himself as an obnoxious prisoner and even attempted suicide a third time. In this instance, he slid under the jail's second-story railing onto the courtyard 10 to 12 feet below. Why does he... Why does he keep jumping from not high enough? <laughs> well, he actually even he actually even made sure that he landed on his shoulder, and he was actually before that he was very uh, careful about taking care of the wounds from his previous attempt. So it really does all look like a bunch of fake bullshit. Yeah, he also was pestering jailers to move him to a warmer, drier cell because his current one was making him achy. My body hurts. I'm in great pain. <laughs> I would like a blanket, but I want to die. <laughs> in fact. The coroner, Dr. Lemonnier, even said that it had been it would have been very easy for Deschamps to kill himself from that railing if he had simply dived headfirst over the top of it. Yeah, I wish he fucking had. Well, he got something worse than that, actually. Did he? As far as being suicidal, Deschamps insisted that the prison was trying to poison him and thus refused to take the medications provided to him. Mm. Eventually, a Mr. Dowling was appointed to represent Deschamps, and during the trial by jury, which consisted of four clerks... Um, two laborers, a bookkeeper, a shoemaker, an engraver, a salesman, a business owner, you know, just normal people. Yeah. A, a, a jury of his peers. Hmm. Well, none of them were animal magnetism rapist doctors. Right. So. Really hard to find a peer for guys like that. You know, they wouldn't have been a very big jury. Right. And jury's out on this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's guilty, but the jury's out. These are the jokes, people. Okay. Dowling's defense was weak, and most of the time consisted of him insisting that the sexual evidence was irrelevant because his client was charged with murder and not rape. He was convinced the jury would be swayed by sexual deviancy. Mm. With all the evidence that we've been discussing today, it took the jury 18 minutes to return with the guilty verdict. So not very long. Nope. And on Monday, May 13th, 1889, they convicted Etienne Deschamps of the murder of Juliette Deitch and sentenced him to hang by the neck until dead. Yeah, so I was going to keep writing about this, but what followed after this was honestly a very boring process of retrials, medical commissions being formed to determine if Deschamps was in fact insane, plenty of back and forth between those that wanted him to hang and those who thought he was insane and thought he should thus face life imprisonment. Um, the commission that formed believed that Deschamps had a brain tumor and was a monomaniac. Uh, I mean, it's all pretty fucking back and forth, but it's important to note, uh, the only thing I will say about that is that the doctor we've frequently been mentioning, Dr. Le Monnier, who did the autopsy, uh, was something of a mental health advocate at the time and, in fact, frequently worked to transfer mentally ill patients from general prison populations to specialized facilities, and he very much thought Deschamps was as sane as possible and was attempting to appear insane to receive a less harsh sentence right the case was eventually remanded by the louisiana supreme court back to the lower court of judge marr who had overseen the initial trial now it was a long and lengthy process but i believe the easiest way to sum up at least three different trials was the prosecutor basically walked up to the jury and said okay how the fuck did this happen if he isn't guilty right and it i mean really like he was caught in the bed with the naked dead girl I mean, he's, with evidence he, of of molestation, like, he's he's guilty of something. Yeah, you know, he's guilty of something. I don't believe in ca uh, capital punishment, but he's guilty of being an average French man. Enchanté. Uh, 
Yikes. So even with a different attorney for Deschamps this time around, the trial ended up basically the same as the first, a swift return by the jury on the finding of guilty. So in March of 1881, Deschamps was relocated to condemned box number one on the third floor of the Orleans Parish Prison, where he would remain until May of the following year. I thought you were going to say something funny. There's nothing funny about a rapist getting what he deserves. That's, that's kind of funny. It's poetic. Yeah, okay. As far as motive goes, Deschamps reportedly said, Why would that kill Juliette? I had everything I wanted with her. She was my mistress. Why should I have killed her? But this kind of just sounds like another calculated response from a manipulative liar. Right. On April 29th, Deschamps was finally told his hanging day would be Friday, May 13th. Wow, spooky. Yeah, he had narrowly escaped his last one through a temporary gubernatorial reprieve. Yeah, his response was, All right, let him hang me. Yeah, after that tough guy facade, he curled up in his favorite corner of his jail cell and wept softly all night. That poor child molester. But also still really worth noting that it's kind of interesting that he was hung on Friday the 13th or at least sentenced to hang. Yeah, he was 13th. sentenced to hang and they later moved it to April 22nd. But I'm I'm just in my heart I'm going to keep it as Friday the 13th, right? So, yeah. Just a fun little bit as we wrap up here. Apparently the executioner was pretty infamous and they called him Hangman Taylor. Yeah, people actually don't know this. He's actually the great-great-grandfather of Tim the Toolman Taylor. Really? Yeah. Are they related to Drillbit Taylor? Uh-huh. So, yeah, apparently Hangman Taylor's last hanging hadn't gone so well. It had been a rainy day, and the rope slipped, so the drop didn't snap the guy's neck like it was supposed to, and he died really slowly <laughs> and painfully while fully conscious. But for Deschamps, Hangman Taylor put in a little extra effort. He made sure to stretch the rope and toweled it with animal fat, so wouldn't happen again. You really give it a non-slip grip. Mm, yeah, I like that. Okay, so I have a death warrant here for one Etienne Deschamps, some weird-looking 62-year-old French guy. Why don't you step on up here? I'm innocent. Who am I to be hung? Le Monnier is the criminal assassin. Le Monnier assassin. Le Monnier. Are you trying to get us to chant that, or? I'm just trying not to be murdered here. <laughs> That's not a murder because it's, it's your sentence. So you're just... You know, it's just part of the process we uh, have. A punishment befitting the crimes that I am innocent of, mon frère. Leave it to a Frenchman to find the romance in this, yes. Yeah, fun fact, his last word was actually adieu. Yeah, he found someone in the crowd he knew, and he looked at them and he said, adieu, right before you hung. So And pointed at them. <laughs> I know what you did last summer. Adieu. Adieu. Jacques Rousse. <laughs> So at exactly 1.11 p.m., Hangman Taylor uh-huh. swung his axe and severed the rope holding the weight, and Deschamps plummeted eight feet before the rope went taut and snapped his little neck. He died in approximately 17 minutes. So eight feet is enough to do it, but seven isn't. Good to know. With a rope around your neck. That's the cool way to jerk off. All the, all the big movie stars are doing it. <laughs> You want to read this little uh, newspaper report here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The local paper reported, A cursory examination of the body by Dr. Lemonnier showed that Etienne Deschamps had died by a slow but unconscious and painless strangulation. Hmm. His inspection revealed that Etienne's face was badly cyanotic, and the rope... Oh, yeah, I think that means it was very blue. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smurf-like, even, mm. if you will. 
Uh, Heel resemble the little Smurf. A Smurf. <laughs> Smurf. Uh, yeah, uh, so his face was badly cyanotic, and the rope had left a deep impression in his neck. The lips were barely parted. Mm. His right eye was closed, and the left eye was partially open with the eyeball in the normal position. I like that they pointed that out. His eyeball didn't pop out of his head. Just thought that was important. We should pretty, put that in there. Pretty cool, if you ask me. So that was a lot. A lot. That was a lot. Um, but I do have a theory, though, because as we talked about earlier, um, he never actually offered a defense uh, in court. He didn't speak English, but even through an interpreter. He was given multiple interpreters. He never offered a defense. All he did was was claim to reporters that he was innocent outside of that and then pretended to be insane when, when certain people came around to check and see if he was insane. But I have a theory that... He never offered a defense or even talked about it because he didn't want anybody else to find that fucking pirate treasure. <laughs> Taking it to the grave with Oh, him. God. Yeah. Just like Jean, Jean Lafitte. Lafitte. So Thursday, May 12th, uh, Etienne Deschamps uh, continued to maintain his innocence and blame anyone but himself for the situation. Uh, he continued to just denounce the situation at hand and really curse the authorities for even accusing him of a crime that there was, in his head, no way that it was possible for him to do that. Well, it's actually kind of funny because in the book, uh, it states that according to Deschamps, the evidence clearly showed that Juliet had died from inhalation of chloroform administered by a person who had minimal knowledge of its application. So he literally was like, I do not know what I am doing. It's not my fault. <laughs> I'm just a funny little guy. I have no idea how to use chloroform. Mais non. Ça like, va. I just love that, that they pointed out like uh, somewhat of minimal knowledge. Like He's like, I don't know. I just bought this drug at the store and I gave it to a little girl and man, here we are. They were like, Etienne, how much knowledge of chloroform do you have? And he said, ah, come see, comes up. And they were like, so two vials then? And ten on pump two? Do. Ah, very good. Do vials at this on pump two. So how do you feel about the first uh, and hopefully the last child murderer, child molestation, and necrophilia episode? This is as close to true crime as I'm ever interested in getting. Yeah, that's as far as we're going. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. There were some ups. There were some downs. There was some pirate treasure. Was there? The real pirate treasure was the girls we were No, no, I did. I mean, I had fun. I had fun for about a third of, uh, I had fun for about a third of the research. It was real and it was good and it was, but it was not real good. Yeah, it was real. Yeah. Yeah. It was all, yeah. Jesus Christ. Man, I don't know. It was kind of, uh, Next week, we're going to do something fun. If we get to $1,000 a month on Patreon, we will donate 10% of the first month to uh, a children's charity that prevents kids or helps kids that have been molested. A non-raping charity. Right, exactly. So, we'll, we'll check. We'll ask. If we get to $10,000 a month on Patreon, we will find a pedophile on NeighborhoodWatchdog.com and beat the shit out of him live we'll waterboard. on Twitch. We'll waterboard him right after I prove that I'll be fine. We'll show that Ian's better than any pedophile by 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 being fine from waterboarding. But the pedophile surely surely will succumb to his injuries. I'm just gonna hold my breath. If you give us three dollars a month, we'll kill a pedophile. <laughs> if a hundred people give us three dollars a month, we will kill a pedophile. I'll fucking use. I'll fucking use big brother neighborhood watch dot com like a fucking roulette. I'll just like spin that bad boy. 
For legal reasons, this is a joke. It's a parody. This is a parody. Parody law. Like Alex Jones mm-hmm. and Tucker Carlson. Not like that. Nope. <laughs> it's satire. It's satire. It's satire. We're not, we're not going to kill anybody. Why are you winking at me? You started it. You Did went I? first. No, I didn't. We're not going to kill anybody. <laughs> oh, God. Stop winking. Are we going to kill somebody? Satire. Satire. We're not going to do that, though. No. That's bad. <laughs> You're still winking. No one can so see are you. I'm not, I'm not. I have something in my eye. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't murder. It's allergy season. Anyways. Mm, it's Alex Jones season. Follow us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. What's the at Twitter? At LSLDpod. Very nice. Give us money on Patreon mm-hmm. at patreon.com slash LSLD. Mm-hmm. Can't believe we got it. Mm-hmm. Follow Derek at I Bash My Bros. Mm. Follow Ian at LSLD Ian. Uh, yeah, so follow us on there. Um, send us send us requests for content. I mean, I have all I have tons of stuff. I don't need your help, but like, if there's something you want to hear about that you want the two funniest white guys on the planet to talk to you about, there's not even a rubber band on it. Not yet. Okay. I don't know where it went. Are you winking at me? No. And. Please don't kill yourselves. Unless you're Etienne Deschamps. And then or a child fine. molester. Then you should. Then we, won't, then we won't have to parody you. Yeah. Stop winking. I'm not. You are. No, you I'm are. pretty sure you are. Did you? All right. As above, so below me. As above, so below me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, chante. <laughs>